Well, as we go to God's word this morning, we are in uh, 1 Peter 3, 8 to the first half of verse 14, uh, where Peter now turns his attention from the different specific audiences that we've talked about to say that these commands are for all of you. Um, And so we're looking at what God's commands are for all of us as a church body this morning, how all of us as believers are to walk in Jesus Christ. And so Jackie will come up for us first and read 1 Peter 3, 8 to 14. After that, Christy will come up and read for us from Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 11.1. And the common thread that I want you to see between those uh, two texts is that what Peter is calling us to in 1 Peter 3, 8 to 14 is he's essentially calling us to live by faith, live by hope and the reality of God and the reality that God looks upon those who walk according to his rules and Hebrews 10, 32 to 11, 1 is another reminder of the same vein so that we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk in hope upon who God is and what he's done rather than upon our own wisdom. After that, we'll jump to the Old Testament, to Psalm 34. Lisa will come and read that for us. Psalm 34 is very important to our text this morning because Peter himself quotes Psalm 34 uh, in the text this morning. And I think that the overall message of Psalm 34 is again this message of looking to God, putting our hope in God as the one from whom we we seek reward instead of from earthly things. Um, And so Lisa will read that for us. Then finally, Don will come up for us and read from Matthew 5, 3 to 11. Matthew 5, 3 to 11 is the Beatitudes, where Jesus tells us what the blessed life looks like, what the blessed life is. And again, in this way, he mirrors the message of Peter, where Peter is telling us what it means to be truly blessed, to live looking toward God alone and not toward the things of earth. And so at this time, uh, Jackie, if you want to come on up and begin our readings from 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter three fourteen, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Hebrews 10, 32 through 11, 1. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which was, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, 
and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 3, three eleven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. As we come to 1 Peter 3, 8 to 14 this morning, uh, I've titled this message, uh, What is the Good Life? And that's because Peter himself uh, prompts this question for us in 1 Peter 3, verse 10. And again, he's quoting Psalm 34, which we just read. In 1 Peter 3, verse 10, he says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Now, I think we would all agree that that's what we all want, right? (laughs) We all want the good life, right? We all want a life that's filled with enjoyment, with pleasure. We all want to love life. We want to see good days. Psalm 34 itself, translated from the Hebrews, doesn't say anything much different. It says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And so Psalm 34 and 1 Peter 3 is speaking to this heart desire that we all have, that we all want to live a good life. And it begs the question, right? What is the good life? What does it mean to live the good life? And as Peter answers this question for us here in 1 Peter 3, 
I think that he is presenting the good life to us through the lens of the gospel. And the gospel is a lens in a couple ways in this passage. One way is that the gospel is the example for us of what the good life looks like. And the second way that the lens of the gospel is used is that the gospel is the motivation for us to live the good life. So the gospel is both the example for us and it is the motivation for us. And so in this message, I just want to look at this passage through those two lenses. First, how is the gospel itself the example of the good life? Now, here in 1 Peter 3, verse 8, he lists for us basically six things that constitute the good life for the Christian. There's six things that constitute the good life for the Christian. Five of them come in verse 8, and then the sixth one comes in verses 9 to 14. So let's look at the first five things that we see in verse 8. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind. That's one thing. Sympathy, number two. Brotherly love, number three. A tender heart, number four. And a humble mind. That's number five. So these are the, the five overall commands that are given to every question. And then just so I don't leave you with a question mark in your head, what's the sixth thing? Well, if you go on to verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. That's the sixth thing. So one aspect of this in verse eight is looking within the context of the Christian community. How are we to live? And then in verse nine and following, it's saying, okay, well, now that you are Christians in the world, how are you to live there? And in the context of the Christian community, we get these five commands. And then in verse 9 and following, get this one additional command that when we are persecuted, when we're reviled, when we face evil, that we don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but we bless. And so for Peter, I say this is what he presents as the good life. To live with unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. And in the context of Christian community... And then, outside of Christian community, to when others attack us, when others come against us, we don't lash back out or return their evil behavior to them, but rather, we bless them. And so as we do these things, we are living the good life. Now, as I've said, this picture of the good life clearly has the gospel itself, the message of Jesus coming, dying on the cross, and rising again. It has those facts as the example for us, right? Because, I mean, if anyone were to come into this room, not be familiar with the message of Jesus, just kind of know what goods the world has to offer, they would not say that what Peter presents here is the good life, would they? No, they would say, you know, this fine food or this fine drink or this wonderful vacation or, you know, these different recreational things you can do or, you know, that is what the world wants to think of as a good life. And so that's what the world pursues. And so the only way that in our minds we are going to be able to embrace verses 8 to 14 as a description of the good life is if we truly understand just how good it is that Jesus came and suffered and died and how it's actually good that we follow his example, that we follow in his footsteps. Now, the gospel itself, we must always remember as Christians, we must always remind ourselves of this, is an intentional inversion of the world's values. It is an intentional turning of the world upside down, right? 
God did not devise his plan of saving sinners like you and me. He did not devise his plan of rescue just on a whim or just haphazardly. He had intentionality in mind with every step. And one of the most intentional things that God did in devising this plan to rescue sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a plan to make foolish the wisdom of the world, right? So to turn upside down, wise becomes foolish, foolish becomes wise. To turn upside down the power of the world, right? So power becomes weakness, weakness becomes power. To turn upside down the the honor of the world, right? So what the world considers honor is actually shame, and what was shameful is now honor. In all these ways, what God wanted to do was he wanted to show that his method of salvation in Jesus Christ is something that only he himself could have devised. Something that only God Most High, God above all creation, could have come up with. Because if anyone in creation had come up with a plan to rescue sinners, to put the world to rights, they would have used the standards of the created world. The standards of strength and of wisdom and of honor and all these things, that's what they would have used to save the world. But God, precisely because he is above the world in every way, because he is outside of creation, because he is over creation, he alone could devise the system of rescue where all the things that the world values, all the power and honor and wisdom that the Lord values, actually becomes nothing. And the poverty and the weakness and the shame that the world despises that those things could become the mechanism of salvation. Those things could become honored. And so that means that when God plans redemption and he turns the world upside down, it means that for us as Christians in our lives, that our lives also are turned upside down. So if we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, right? Followers of the Messiah, followers of this one who came into the world even though he had all power, came into the world in weakness and died in weakness. If we follow the one who has all honor because he is God and yet he came into the world shameful and died a shameful death. And if we honor this one, we call him Lord who has all wisdom and yet he came into the world and looked like a foolish person. If that's the one that we follow, then that means that our own concept of the good life Our own concept of how we are to now live must be shaped by the Savior, must be shaped by this one who himself abandoned these worldly concepts of excellence and embraced a turning of the world upside down. And that is why we as Christians, and that's the only reason why we as Christians can call the good life the things that Peter here states. Again, things like unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, not repaying evil for evil, right? I know that people who don't treasure Jesus Christ, who don't value the amazing work that he did upon the cross and in his resurrection, I know they're going to read those words and they're going to say, that is a foolish life. That is a crazy life. But we who have received the glorious news of the gospel, we can look on these things. And yes, our our fleshly hearts are still going to have a hard time with it. 
We're going to say, really, God, that's how I have to live? (laughs) Our fleshly hearts are going to have a hard time with it. But deep down, because we love Jesus, because we so treasure what he's done for us, we're going to say, okay, God, I can understand this. I can get behind this. If this is what the Lord of all creation came, and and if this is how he lived, then this is how I can live too, because he's wonderful, and I love him, and he is much wiser than me, smarter than me. And so that's how we live. And so let's look at these things for just a few moments to see what Peter truly means, what God truly means by saying that these things are the good life. So the first thing he lists here, 1 Peter 3 verse 8, have unity of mind. Unity of mind. Now that is just what it sounds like. Again, Peter is speaking to a church, right? He's written to churches And he is telling the church to have unity of mind. And it means that we are to think the same way. Now, what is the same way that we are to think in? Well, it's largely what I've just explained. We are to think in the same way in terms of Jesus himself being the most glorious being that has ever existed. And who came and who turned the world upside down through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. We are to share that opinion about God. And to share that opinion about how the world has been turned upside down through Jesus Christ. We are not to disagree about that. We are not to argue over that. We are not to be skeptical about that. This is not a debate club, right? We share these convictions. We share this hope. That's what makes us a church deep down. That's why we have a statement of faith that unites us as a church. Because we want to have a unity of mind about these things that are most important. And the bylaws that we're working on passing right now, we elevate to a special level. Statements like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Because we recognize that Christians through the ages have confessed these creeds. And we want to have unity of mind, not just with one another in this room, but unity of mind with everyone who has said that Jesus Christ is my hope. I love him. I trust in him. And that unity of mind mean things like believing that there is a God who has existed forever and ever and that he is great and wonderful and glorious. And that he has sent his son who is part of his own being. That this one God exists as three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that salvation, that rescue means that we come to share in his very life and the life of the Trinity. These are all glorious truths that affect our lives in every way that we are to have unity of mind about. Now, will there be things that we disagree on? Yes, obviously. And shared some of those things from the pulpit even a few weeks ago when we talked about things like social justice and There's even more debatable matters of theology, right? Things like eschatology that, yes, we're going to disagree on. So we will not have perfect unity of mind. We do not have to have perfect unity of mind. But what we do have to have unity of mind on is the things that Christians have embraced throughout all ages and times. Again, that there is one God in three persons, that he has sent his son who is fully man and fully God, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again three days later, and that by faith in him, anyone who trusts in him may be saved. That's what makes us Christians. And that is what we are to have unity of mind about. Indeed, beloved, when we come together on Sunday morning, I hope we all recognize that what we share in common more than anything else 
What binds us together is the fact that we agree about those most important and most fundamental facts. It's why I hope that we, as a Christian community, are in fact very strange to the world, you know? That I would love spending time with people who are very different age from me, different gender from me, different occupation from me, different race than me, all these things. I love spending time with others like that. Why? Because I have unity of mind with them on these hugely consequential things. So my prayer is that even when we gather together every Sunday, we remember what binds us together. We remember that we have unity of mind about the beauty of Christ, his work on the cross, about the glory of God. And how these things are the most fundamental things that change our lives. So we are to have unity of mind. And this is part of what gives us the good life. Sympathy. We are to have sympathy for one another. Now, sympathy especially involves understanding where each other is at emotionally in terms of the experiences of our lives. Especially when one of us is suffering. Understanding how hard that suffering must be putting ourselves in another's shoes. That's what sympathy is. This is what Jesus commands us when he commands us to love others as we love ourselves, right? We are to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, saying, how would I like to be treated? How would I like to be loved? And then loving them in that way, just as if they were our own selves. This is what sympathy is. And again, this is part of the good life. This life is better than the life of the me first, me in the center kind of life, (laughs) Saying, no, I'm going to put you in the center. I'm going to move myself to your shoes and treat you in that way. So sympathy. Brotherly love. Notice it's not just love. It's brotherly love, which goes back to that unity of mind, right? As we understand that we have all been adopted by God. Adopted. Made sons and daughters. Adopted by God in Jesus Christ. Then we understand that we are indeed brothers and sisters. In Jesus Christ. And because we are brothers and sisters, that means we show brotherly love to one another. Again, not just generic love, like I hope you have a good day, I hope you have a good life, but considering one another as family, as brothers and sisters. A tender heart. We are not to be proud and arrogant people, always defending ourselves, always saying that my way is the right way, my way is the best way. But rather, we are to be open to criticism from others, very easily receiving criticism, right? So people don't have to use, you know, really harsh words and put up a billboard to make us understand something, right? But that we're so tender-hearted to one another that even a look from one another, even a short word from someone else wakes us up and helps us to see, oh, I've done something wrong in this context, or I should care more for this brother or sister. We are tender-hearted toward one another. We are easily pricked. Again, the world values having a hard heart, right? Thick skin, tough walls. And this is the opposite of what we are to be in the context of our Christian community. We are to be tender-hearted. And then lastly, a humble mind. Again, the world wants to say that pride is the best way to go. Self-confidence is the best way to go. And yet, as we look at the example of Jesus Christ, as we look at the example that Jesus set for us in the gospel, making himself a servant, 
considering others more significant than himself. In his example, through the gospel, we learn humility. We learn to not assume that we are always right and that others are always wrong, but rather we learn to treat others as more significant than ourselves. And so these are the first five things that make up the good life. And again, these are the things that we do in the context of our own Christian community. These are the things that make a church a church. If a church has unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, humble mind, then that is a beautiful church. That is a gospel-shining church because it is shining a way of life that makes no sense to the world and that only makes sense through the gospel because it is the gospel example. And so my prayer is that we as a church would embrace more and more of this way of life, more and more of this way of interacting with one another as we understand how wonderful it is that Jesus came and suffered and died for us. But again, the good life doesn't end there. It doesn't end just inside the church, right? We can't spend all of our time inside the fellowship of the church. We also have to spread out into the world And what happens when we spread out into the world? Well, precisely because our way of life is so upside down from the way of the world, we can expect to experience opposition. And that's where Peter goes next. He says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he has the quote from Psalm 34 that I'll come back to in just a minute and then jump down to verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So Peter is telling us that when we go out into the world and when we experience opposition, we must strive to do good. We must strive not to hate those who hate us, not to punish those who punish us, But again, as verse 9 says, on the contrary, bless. And it's really important for us to realize that what Peter is commending here is not simply what we Americans would call passive-aggressive behavior, right? (laughs) Like we're just to kind of grin and bear it, but you know, deep in our hearts, we're like, oh, somebody's going to get you back someday, you know? Or say kind words, even though deep in our hearts, we know we really hate these people. No, Peter is commending blessing that truly comes from the heart. And so we're not simply being passive-aggressive. We're not simply being passive to the evil that's put upon us, to the reviling that comes upon us. Rather, we are being very active in terms of blessing those who persecute us. And again, Is it not so clear how the gospel itself is our example in this and how the gospel itself is an upside-down kind of gospel? Beloved, if this world were all we were living for, if the world's goods were all we wanted, then there would only be one right response to suffering evil. And that would be, make sure they stop it, right? Or get even. Or stand up for yourself. Because if you're just trampled on all the time, what kind of a life is that? And yet, again, we see in the example of Jesus who was arrested, who was whipped, who had a crown of thorns put on his head, who was mocked, who was even crucified. And what did he do through all of his experience? He blessed. Even from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. 
They know not what they do. He uttered words of blessing toward them. And so, beloved, if Jesus is to be our example, if the gospel itself is our good news, then when we suffer evil, we bless. We wish that God would do well to them. That's what blessing is. We ask for their forgiveness. We ask for God to prosper them. We ask for God to give them a good life. We bless them. And so that is what we as Christians are to do as we go about our lives. Now, all by itself, just having the gospel as an example and having this presentation of the good life is, I think, an enormous weight, an enormous burden. I mean, just to be able to bless those who are reviling me, who hate me, I mean, what human being can do that? Again, I have to, it's like going against every fiber of my being, going against my own flesh, letting it suffer, letting it die. How can I do that? Simply having the gospel as motivation, or as, as the gospel as example is not enough. We also need the gospel as motivation. And again, that's what Peter gives us here. Peter holds forth for us the gospel itself as the great motivation that will enable us to live this good life, to live this life inside the church, and to live this life in the context of the unbelieving world. So look at verse 9 again. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Right, that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter right there is holding out this hope of obtaining a blessing. But don't stop there. Let's go on and read this quotation from Psalm 34. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Now, I'll explain this in just a moment, but that's a great little gospel summary there. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. So he's holding forth the good news of God looking in favor upon you. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. There's that word again. You will be blessed. Holding out this future promise of blessing. And so, beloved, if you look at these commands for the good life, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, temple, tender heart, humble mind, not repaying evil for evil, if you look at those things and you're like, you know what, I really want to be able to do that, or I really love the idea of doing those things, but I just don't know how I could possibly do them, well, then Peter's answer for you here is to look out for the blessing of God. You were called to obtain a blessing. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And what is this blessing? It is what he speaks of again in verse 12, quoting Psalm 34, that the eyes of the Lord would be on the righteous and his ears open to their prayer. 
Now, I know all by itself, this may not seem like the best of news, right? Because the very next line there is that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. (laughs) And we all know, do we not, that we do evil things. We don't always do the right things that we should do. And so we might think, oh, the eyes of the Lord being on me, like that's supposed to be some hope that I look forward to. (laughs) Because we think if the eyes of the Lord are on us, That must mean we're going to be judged. We're going to suffer the wrath of God because we all know how evil we've been, how many wrong things that we've done. And yet Peter presents it here as good news, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. How could that be? How could that be good news, that the Lord promises blessing to the righteous and that the Lord will watch those who are righteous? Well, beloved, the only way that could be good news is if we understand the central message of the gospel, right? That in Jesus Christ, that Christ took all of the punishment that we deserved. Christ bore all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing. He bore all of that on himself. So that if we will only look to him with eyes of faith, if we will just look to him, trusting him, then all of our sin, all of the evil that we have done will be absorbed by him. And when God looks at us now, he will only see one thing. He will see righteousness. He will see his beloved son who rose again in power. And so in that way, we can know with confidence that if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, then the Lord looking on us truly is a blessing. It truly is a good thing because he is not looking on us to punish us. He does not see our evil deeds anymore. But rather, through Christ, he receives us. Again, he adopts us. He welcomes us as his beloved sons and daughters. And so in that way, We can come to 1 Peter 3.12, to Psalm 34, where it says that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. And we can say, thank you, Lord, that that is me. That I am righteous, not of my own works, not because I have done everything good and perfectly, but because in Jesus Christ, I have a righteous standing so that your eyes look out for me as one of your own children so that you will shelter me, so that whenever I cry out to you in prayer, whenever I speak your name, you will hear me. Beloved, we must have this gospel confidence that in Jesus Christ, we truly are welcomed, we truly are forgiven. We must have that confidence if we are going to be able to live out this gospel-shaped vision of the good life. Because it means that we will most certainly give up a lot of things on this earth. (laughs) We will give up a lot of wealth. We will give up a lot of pleasure. We will give up a lot of earthly goods. But if we understand how we have been welcomed in Jesus Christ, despite all our wrongdoing, if we understand how we've been welcomed, then we understand that we have a treasure, a good treasure that far outweighs everything that we've been left behind. But you see, to whatever extent we doubt that we really have that treasure, if we do not place our faith in God, if we, if we say to God, you know what, Lord, I'm not really sure that you'll forgive me in Jesus Christ. I'm not really sure that you will accept me in him. If we're not really sure 
then, beloved, we will also not really be sure if we can give up the world's goods. Because we won't really know that we have this inheritance, this blessing that is waiting for us. And if you want to know what is that richest blessing of all, that blessing that can come to us even if we suffer, as 1 Peter 3 says, then I do want us to look at Psalm 34 because this is what Peter was looking at as he was writing this. So again, if you have your Bible, flip back to Psalm 34. We're just going to look at two verses in Psalm 34 in closing. And what these verses show us is the ultimate good that we receive in the gospel and how the good life that 1 Peter 3 describes really can be a good life. Even if it's not a good life by worldly standards, it can still be a good life. So look at Psalm 34. Let's start in verse 4. We'll do verses 4 and 5, and then I also want to look at verse 8. So it says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look to him, those who look to God, are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Beloved, there is nothing in this world, there is no earthly good that you could go to again and again and again and have your face be radiant and never be put to shame. There is only one place we can go to be radiant, and that is to the face of God himself. When we come to God, he makes our faces radiant. He makes our whole beings radiant because he is the creator of all things. He is the ultimate good that we were made for. And that is why when we come to God, we become radiant because he is the source of all good. He is the source of everything that is perfect. And this is what the psalmist says again in Psalm 34 verse 8. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Beloved, what is the good life? (laughs) What constitutes the best life of all? Psalm 34 answers that question. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, has the Lord given us many good gifts in this world? Yes, he has. And we should be thankful for all of them, right? To say that the Lord is good doesn't mean that we have to deny that the world is a good place or that there are things that we should give thanks for in the world, right? I would also say that I can taste and see that a good steak is really good or good ice cream. All these things are good, right? But beloved, the life lived enjoying good steak or good ice cream The life lived enjoying family, enjoying good vacations, enjoying any good earthly things, as pleasant as that may be, it is not the good life, beloved. The good life is the life where you taste and see that the Lord is good. And when you taste and see the Lord is good, your face, it becomes radiant. And you see, this is the blessing that Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 3. This is why Peter can say that even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. In fact, you will be blessed more than anything you give behind. Because the Lord is good. 
Because you can come to him and you can experience the greatest of all goods. And again, beloved, the only way we come is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And as we come in that way, we know that there is no more barrier. We know that our sin is no barrier. We know that our family of origin is no barrier. We know that our ethnicity is no barrier. We know that there is no barrier to tasting the goodness of God. As we come to him in Jesus Christ, this is why the gospel is good news. (laughs) This is why the shed blood of Jesus Christ is so sweet. Because it opens up the very throne room of God for us to come into his presence, to behold his glory, to have our faces become radiant and to say that the Lord is good. And so as we confess that this morning, Would you go to God with me now in prayer, to the God who has welcomed us in Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for letting us taste and see that you are good. I praise you, Lord, that one taste of your goodness is better than how bad a thousand tastes are of any kind of worldly poison or worldly suffering that we can experience. Father, would you let us taste and see that you are good this morning. Lord, I pray especially for anyone here this morning who doubts for any reason that you will welcome him or her into your presence that you might taste your goodness. Lord, I pray that you yourself, by your Spirit, will speak your gospel to them in this moment so that they might know that, yes, I am welcomed in. Yes, I can taste of the goodness of the Father. So, Lord, speak the gospel to our hearts right now. Lord, we also look out to the needs of the world around us right now. And so, Lord, as we, as your people, come to you in prayer, Would you hear now our cries of confession, of petition for ourselves and for the sake of those around us? Lord, hear our prayer now.